Real, the podcast where we talk about the entertainment that we consume and what we really think about it. I am one of your hosts, Michael, and uh, I do sometimes dream of electric sheep. And I'm joined this week by my friend, colleague, and co-host, and the man who probably has done a few tears in the rain, Jesse. How you doing, Jesse? I'm good, man. I'm good. Those tears were lost, just FYI, and I've never dreamt of electric sheep myself. I've sometimes tried counting them so I can fall asleep, but that never really works out for me. <laughs> I mean, I actually had, uh, in preparation for this, I rewatched, um, well, the movie we're going to be talking about here, Blade Runner, and its subsequent sequel, uh, Blade Runner uh, 2049. So, mm-hmm. um, I had, I had, a electric sheep on the brain. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I could see that you don't, I don't think you ever see an electric sheep, although I didn't watch all the versions of this movie. So maybe they snuck one in and, you know, one <laughs> of the random ones there, but yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So, um, just kind of an overview, I guess we kind of, I just spoiled it a little bit at the very top of the episode. So I don't even know if it's a spoiler since we're going to be talking about it. Uh, Mm -hmm. This episode, we're going to be talking about um, Blade Runner, the movie. And uh, Jesse, do you want to explain potentially why we're going to be talking about it just to give some context? Sure. So there's a couple different reasons why I thought this was a good fit given the time of the year. Uh, For one, uh, Denis Villeneuve's Dune, his adaptation of the acclaimed science fiction novel, is going to be released in October, and that is very much going to be a future episode that we'll be doing. So I thought it would be worthwhile to do an episode for him uh, discussing his movies that he's already made, uh, given that he's a filmmaker that I greatly admire. And of course, as you alluded to, he did uh, film the sequel to Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049. So it made sense in my mind to go, well, if we're going to talk about that and his other works, we may as well touch on Blade Runner as well while we're at it. So that was my long buildup of logic to get to that point. Uh, And for the second reason, you know, this movie just lends itself well to the fall season. Uh, it's pretty dark in most of the scenes. It rains a lot. It's, you know, it's just has that fall type feel as a prelude before we get into spooky season. So I thought, yeah, why not? seems like a good time. No, I agree. It's, it's got some pretty intense moments in the, in the movie itself. So I think it is a good time to talk about it. <laughs> freaking sebastian's apartment man just i think that oh. trips me out more than anything else but uh we can we can get to that <laughs> a little bit but um you know this is probably the most celebrated pure science fiction movie that has been released and although it was not super well received when it came out it has since built you know a a pretty raucous cult following uh, behind it for people who see it as largely influential on the science fiction genre as a whole and some of the subgenres that have been developed under that. So, Michael, before we get into some of the background on this movie, because I think that's almost as interesting as the film itself, 
what in your lifetime has been your experience with Blade Runner? And is it a movie that you agree? Yes, you know, this is critical to the science fiction genre, or are you not as warm on it as some of the other nerds that, you know, celebrate this movie so much? Yeah, so I think uh, my, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, my introduction to Blade Runner was on uh, G4, the old uh, game media uh, TV channel. And mm-hmm. I think they were just, it might've been an anniversary or something like that, but I remember like seeing it. And I feel like that's the first time I ever watched it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was more because at the t- being a young impressionable teenager, I was told that I needed to watch it for nerd credit. And <laughs> therefore I was like, yeah, I need to watch it for nerd credit. And so I watched it and I, even at the time I was still really into the, technical aspects of movie productions uh being a theater nerd um so i really enjoyed like seeing the landscapes and the artistic direction and just kind of all the themes that they was just like so enveloping or uh, uh, enveloping uh uh engrossing um trying to think of a better word but um captivating it was just just watching it i just was fixated on it so I think that was kind of my first experience with it. And I remember being kind of disappointed um, as a teenager because it's it's a it's a talky movie. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as a teenager, I was like expecting action and excitement. And then it turned out just to be, you know, kind of the story of a guy kind of being a beat cop uh, detective, uh, you know, a noir detective is the term I'm looking for, just kind of going around and trying to solve crimes and talking to people and doing research and stuff. So, and then like brief flashes of excitement and entertainment. So that was kind of the first uh, experience I ever had with it. I didn't get soured on it. It just was like, Oh, okay. That's what this movie was. I didn't realize. And then I've gone back a few times uh, and rewatched it. Uh, I actually used it as an example piece for one of my production analysis classes I was doing. Uh, We were talking about doing Hamlet in space. Um, And so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I really wanted to kind of blend the idea of the costumes, and this is kind of a little off key, but uh, the costumes for the production were going to be like that campy um, 1950s, 19 late 1940s, uh, space age stuff with like the big like fishbowl helmets and like kind of the poofy with the big elbows and the big like every joint has like these really big areas um, of extra fabric and all this stuff and then I wanted to do the set as like um, and this is again nerdum here um, Warhammer 40k has this very it's a board game but they have a very dark future uh aesthetic but it's also like based off of high gothic um architecture so like a lot of skulls a lot of art like churchy architecture was that and then some of the other minor characters were going to be cyberpunk essentially so i think it was um rosencrantz and gildenstern were going to be actually cyborgs and kind of pulling from more of the cyberpunk aesthetic and so i went back and rewatched it and had to justify my reasonings for pulling three different um 
artistic and theming styles to my teacher and was like, well, these are all like really important, like eras of science fiction. And I really want to point that out. So that's kind of why I went down that road and rewatched it in college and was really, and was like, wow, I just was still blown away by the spectacle of it. And yeah. And then I rewatched it in preparation for this episode again and was like, Oh gosh, there is so much talking. I keep forgetting how much talking is in this movie. And Mm -hmm. then getting to watch and then knowing certain things now about the kind of the production side side of it that I learned and like looking for those like small little details, which we can get into later. But yeah, that's kind of, I mean, my history, I've seen it quite a few times. I know I've started it a few times and not finished it because it is sometimes it gets boring. So yeah. Yeah. First of all, I feel like we now need an episode for your making of your <laughs> Rosencrantz and Guildenstern as cyborgs uh, project that you did. So <laughs> you may revisit that because I think that speaks to every person who took an English class from our generation. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, secondly, I think what you described is a pretty typical experience that people have with this movie um, in that it doesn't always meet the expectations that we have for it. And I think a large part of that is you see Harrison Ford on the cover of a sci-fi movie or on the poster of a sci-fi movie. And you think, oh, Harrison Ford, action star, sci-fi. This will be like Indiana Jones in space. And then it's really nothing like that at all. Um, I think a large part of that is he's usually the one driving the action in a lot of his films as the protagonist, whereas Blade Runner, it seems like a lot of things are done to him or that other characters are more so driving the narrative than he is. But we can talk about more of that, more about that later. But uh, that's a pretty common experience. And uh, one of my favorite uh, YouTube critics is Chris Stuckman. And he has described this as a movie that you can't consume all at once or in that you can't, you just can't you know, fully grasp everything that's going on in one sitting. A, because it doesn't live up to your expectations and B, or what's, what the style of movie is going to be. But also B, once you do kind of go back and realize, oh, it's a talky movie, I think you start to pick up on some of those things that you missed the first time or the second time. So it really does take multiple viewings in order to see, oh, this is not, you know, just a boring slog that looks kind of cool. It actually, you know, has a lot of inherent value as a, as a film. Um, It also greatly depends on which version you see of this movie, because one could be almost completely different than the other. And that, I think, has a big impact on what your experience is when you start. But yeah, uh, for me, myself, for me, myself, I think it was pretty similar for me, dude. I watched this when I was, I forget what age, but a teenager. And again, I similar to yours in that I was caught off guard by the volume of dialogue in contrast to the amount of action that took place. And I think I found myself kind of bored that first time and not fully appreciating everything that was going on. And it was really only been recently, probably in the last five years or so that 
I've been able to kind of sit down and know what to expect going in and uh, be able to be laser focused on everything that's happening. And I think I've gained a greater appreciation for this movie and can see why it has been so influential on the sci-fi genre. Um, visually, I mean, it's, it's a stunning movie, especially for the time in terms of what they accomplished. Story-wise, I think it's a little thin still and a little boring still in certain parts. And I don't think it's necessarily the most interesting narrative, but the atmosphere in this world of the future that they've created, I think just has a profound impact on our minds. And after you see this movie, it just kind of lingers with you. You can't, even if you didn't love it, you just are unable to shake the, the feelings that you had when you watched it and just, you know, how striking some of the imagery was. So, yeah, no, I totally agree with you on that. It, I, yeah, it's, it's visual. It's so visually impressive. I mean, I, I can't wait till we get, we get to the production part of it. Cause I want to, I'm going to yeah. gush about it. So, yeah. So I think we'll go ahead and do that. And I, for our viewers who don't know, um, because I don't think everybody does, uh, the movie is indeed an adaptation of the Philip K. Dick sci-fi novel, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Um, and to sort of just dive in you know, right now into the development side, uh, there was a lot of interest in adapting that novel after its 1968 publication. Uh, Martin Scorsese even was said to be interested, and that would have been pretty early in his career in terms of his filmography so it it i can see why it, it intrigued him as you know potentially an interesting project to help something to sink his teeth into and something that can maybe jumpstart his career but uh he never did pull the trigger on that so we never did get to see the scorsese version <laughs> of this adaptation which i am just completely intrigued on what that would look like now <laughs> i digress uh, a draft for the script was written in 1970, uh, but Philip K. Dick hated the draft so much that at a scheduled meeting with the writer, uh, he met him at the airport, and the first thing that he said to the writer was, shall I beat you up here at the airport, or shall I beat you up back at my apartment? So, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Writers can be a little a little blunt sometimes in their criticism and their opinions. And I've never read that draft or seen it myself, but it must have just completely clashed with what he thought an adaptation of his original work should look like. So he th threatened to beat up a guy. We're, we're doing good so far. Um, another draft was written in 1977. And Ridley Scott was hired to direct in 1980 with financial backing from Filmways, the production company. Uh, Scott had previously turned down an opportunity to direct Blade Runner, uh, but his schedule had recently opened, and I found this fact intriguing. Uh, it had recently opened after he left an adaptation of Dune, uh, believe it or not. And of course, Denis Villeneuve, who directed Blade Runner 2049, is 
has directed his own adaptation of Dune, which is releasing next month. So I thought that was <laughs> just a coincidental little factoid there. <clears throat> um, prior to the beginning of principal photography, uh, Filmways withdraws financial backing, uh, forcing the producer to find new investors. A three-way deal is reached between the Lad Company, which was a company of a, three diff a few different executives that was financed by Warner Brothers, the Hong Kong-based producer Run Run Shaw, and Tandem Productions. So as was pretty common back then, it took multiple companies to try and get this project off the ground because there wasn't as much money in film back then. So it didn't always just, you didn't always just get one, one studio to green light your project and you were good to go. You had to jump through these financial hoops in order to see your idea come to life. So um, Dick was upset that he hadn't been informed of the film's production, uh, making him even more distrustful of the suits in Hollywood. And he was not a fan of the original scripts that was being adapted for this. However, after rewrites were completed, he definitely approved and he liked the finished scripts. And they also did a 20 minute special effects test reel that was screened just for him. And in a quote, he says, I saw a segment of special effects for Blade Runner on the KNBC News. I recognized it immediately. It was my own interior world. They caught it perfectly. He also approved of the film script, saying, after I finished reading the screenplay, I got the novel out and looked through it. The two reinforce each other so that someone who started with the novel would enjoy the movie and someone who started with the movie would enjoy the novel. Michael, I myself have actually not read the novel. Have you ever read that? Uh, I think I read it in college, uh, a separate time than the time I was making the separate uh, separate time than that production class I was in. So I, I think um, I listened to it on book and it was weird and it, if i remember correctly it's, it's like a it's short stories isn't it i feel like or am i i might be remembering something another one of his books that he did um potentially i i do think it had some more environmental and religious themes incorporated into it than the movie did but uh did you feel that you agree with the quote though that's that as an, someone who appreciates the film that you appreciated the novel or had you not uh, gained that appreciation for the movie yet? I, I think I remember reading it and seeing where a lot of the themes came from for the movie. Mm. Um, it does definitely carry that dystopian science fiction feel uh, that, you know, almost uh, I think it's, I think the novel set in post-apocalyptic type stuff Um Wow, you're really making me dredge up memories here. Um, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta keep you on your toes. Sometime. Yeah, right. Uh, it's. I feel like it's post-apocalyptic in the sense that there was a world war, um, radiation. The uh, the colonies is still a thing in the book, um, and people are leaving and um, going there, um, and then they do genetically engineer um, androids, which are different than robots. Uh, or cyborgs um and 
that's 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 where I'm starting to fuzz out on there. Um, so do you do you feel then that it was a similar experience that you appreciated though, or were they pretty different in your I mind? I, I mean, I feel like the themes of you know at least what I get get from the movie is, and, and I feel like I got from the book um, was like kind of the question of what what what's the meaning what what is life what does it mean. You know, who gets to say what is alive and what isn't alive and who, you know, that type of stuff, because I think the reference to electric sheep in the book is essentially that there are animals that are androids and there are real and are like alive animals. And so I feel like that's um, kind of where that comes from. And that's the idea. And I, I get that is like, you know, what is what is life and who gets to say who gets to die and who gets to live type stuff is really what I gather from the movie. So, yeah. Well, I think Philip K. Dick would be happy to hear that. So <laughs> there you go. All these years later, um, he unfortunately passed away uh, before the film's release. Uh, so we did not get to see the final product, although this movie hasn't really had a final product until recently. So we would have had to live a lot longer than just 1982 in order to see that. Um, the casting for the role of Deckard, uh, the character portrayed by Harrison Ford, then the main protagonist of the film, uh, proved to be difficult. Uh, the script was written with Robert Mitchum in mind, who, if you don't know, Faithful Listeners, was a star of many uh, classic film noir films. Um, Scott and the producers also spent months discussing the role with Dustin Hoffman, uh, who eventually mm. declined the role due to differences in vision. Several actors were considered for the role, and I think you'll get a kick out of this list, Michael, but it included Gene Hackman, Sean Connery, Jack Nicholson, Paul Newman, Clint Eastwood, Tommy Lee Jones, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Peter Falk, Nick Nolte, Al Pacino, and Burt Reynolds. Wow. I knew I knew about Arnold. Um, I didn't know about a lot of those other ones. I mean, some of those guys at this time were still relative unknowns in Hollywood, so maybe they were realistic, but I'm just speculating, but it seems to me that that considered list for a lot of the named actors was more of a, a wish list than anything that they actually gained fraction on. But, uh, you know, who knows? Um, nonetheless, uh, Harrison Ford was ultimately the actor who received the role. And that was for several reasons. Um, his performance in the Star Wars films, which I think was part of what set up the expectations that were not met for a lot of audience members after seeing him as Han Solo and then trying to grab, uh, wrap their minds around Blade Runner. Um, Ford's interest in the Blade Runner story and discussions with Steven Spielberg, who was finishing Raiders of the Lost Ark at the time and strongly praised Ford's work in the film. Um, after doing Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark, some, you know, more popcorn, you know, fun summertime-based movies, uh, Ford was looking for a role with some more dramatic depth. Uh, the role that was not difficult to cast was Rutger Hauer as Roy Batty, the violent yet thoughtful leader of the Replicants. Scott was so convinced that he was going to 
just fit the role like a glove that he cast Hauer without having met him based solely on Hauer's performances and Paul Ver, Verhoeven's movies Scott had seen, including Katie Tipple, Soldier of Orange, and Turkish Delight. Uh, this is also, of all the films that Hauer made, uh, Blade Runner was his favorite. Um, I'm just going to interject here real quickly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do, you, uh, do you know the uh, story of the first time they met in person? I do not. So Okay. Um, Indulge us. <laughs> This is uh, this is really good. Um, so the first time they met, uh, he showed up. It was I'm going to try to remember this correctly. He showed up in. He had already dyed his hair. Uh, the bleach the blonde, platinum blonde, or platinum blonde. blonde. Yep. Yeah. Um, in suede hot pink pants. <laughs> uh, with a fox, like one of those like fox i don't know what they're called but it's like a scarf made out of fox uh fur hmm. he had red contact lenses in his eyes and was wearing pink elton john-esque uh sunglasses <laughs> how 80s of him yeah and so and like the whole reason that he did that was that he felt like that's what uh how bad fashion like this would be in the future um and how outrageous <laughs> it would be just kind of with the cultural um fashion that they was currently going on so fun fact that was it you can go you, you can continue now <laughs> yeah, that's awesome i i love that and feel free dude uh this, this is kind of you know i'm i'm going through the motions here yeah we do have an open forum so feel free <laughs> to interject with your knowledge at any point uh for the benefit of us all um but i thought the other really noteworthy part about howard in this movie is that I mean, he's most known for, and you know, we're we're gonna get into some spoilers, folks, for those who haven't seen Blade Runner. So, <laughs> I mean, it's it's been out for years. So that's again, as always, that's on you. But fair warning. Um, but uh, Tears and Rain, the 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 famous speech that I think garnered him a lot of the acclaim that he earned for this role. He actually rewrote that speech uh, himself and presented the words to Scott on set prior to filming. So he didn't even tell him the director of the fucking movie that he was rewriting his most pivotal scene. He just did it and then showed it to him right before they were going to start rolling the cameras for it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ballsy move. It's a, it's a bold move, Cotton. And it, it indeed paid off for him. So yeah, good, good for him. I also always enjoyed edward james almost in this although he's not in i he's not in the version that i saw recently that much uh, i watched the final cut for this uh, so maybe he's in the other versions a little bit more um he's not in that not in that one too too much but uh yeah i always you know i was like hey it's edward james almost so that's that's always fun um i think because we're going to go into some of the conversations about the different versions and what that did to these folks. But uh, Michael, do you want to talk about some of the designs for the visuals and whatnot? Yeah, absolutely. So kind of, I think when you talk about Blade Runner, you 
have to talk about, or one of the topics that come up is kind of just the striking visualize uh, the visuals that come from the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the influences on productions, on uh, games, on everything. Like you think about, and we'll kind of touch a little bit on this, but like just the theme of cyberpunk coming out mm-hmm. and this being part of that culture looking and seeing the giant buildings and kind of that dystopian future, like games like uh, cyberpunk 2077, which is a video game that recently came out. Yeah. Has, has in the media world, it has a been getting like really great reviews because it was kind of rushed or whatever, but still well, had, did blade runner when it first came out. So yeah, <laughs> um, you see these like impacts that this visual uh, aesthetic has i think you can even see them like pretty much anytime you have this type of dystopian tech based world you see these giant buildings you see these giant um structures that are given form and it's all part of the i feel like coming from this in its tone and shift another really cool part about this is how much CGI do you think is in this movie, Jesse? Not too much, I wouldn't think. Um, just given the time I would and the budget, I would assume they had to rely on more practical effects for a lot of that stuff. I, I imagine there is some level of CGI, but I wouldn't think it would be overbearing by any means. <laughs> so actually, there's zero CGI as we no. know it today in this movie. Everything you (laughs) see in this movie. Yeah, right. It's crazy. When you think about some of the sweeping pictures and stuff like that, I think about like the giant Coca-Cola sign that they have. Like that seems like a prime opportunity for a CGI thing um, or even something along those lines. But this movie has zero of that. It is all either matte paintings, which is the old way of doing things uh, before Mm -hmm. CGI to give you those grand sweeping vistas. Um, Models. So like scale models that are built up and then reused props or sets from other productions, because like you were saying, there wasn't a lot of money behind this movie. And so they had to do a lot of cost saving things. So there's like a bunch of reused um, pieces from other movies, like either flipped around or like recolored or re kind of redone. Um, So there's in fact, they talk about uh, I think one of the things I saw was like close encounters. Um, mm-hmm. the mothership in close encounters is actually the police station in this movie, <laughs> just kind All of right. mod- modified slightly. So we, this we never movie, did see the inside of that ship. So I mean, yeah. what, what's going on in there, <laughs> right? It's all, it's all, it's all just a fabrication of the matrix and that they're all really in <laughs> the blade runner movie. Yeah. Um, so, and that's just kind of the other, the, the, some of the other cool things too. Uh, I think one of the most interesting um, visual effects that happen, um, and I always, the characters, um, but when, so when Roy goes to kill the like CEO of the company and he like stabs his thumbs into his eyes, uh, they actually made a, I think it was like thousands of dollar prosthetic piece for him to actually like go in and mm-hmm. do that too and like really get it in there mm-hmm. but for whatever reason they uh didn't use that <laughs> and 
what they did was is in that scene they had uh tubes running up to his hands uh running up behind uh running up his hands and then behind uh the act the other actor's ears and Mm -hmm. he's just pushing his his fingers kind of like forcefully looking but not really hard into this guy's like uh, bridge of his nose area Mm-hmm. And he's kind of moving his thumbs, not actually pushing on his eyes. And it's just the fact that they're pumping blood through and the camera angles to mm-hmm. make it look like he's really shoving his fingers in there or his thumbs into his eye sockets. And that's it. So they did such a great job of just kind of changing camera angles and working with what they had, even though they apparently had lots of money, but also not any money at all, which is kind of funny when you hear about like the things they did. You're like, but you had enough money to make a replica head but not enough money to do other things. (laughs) Right. Right. So um, it just, it's such an impressive movie just on the technical aspects, the theming aspects of the entire thing. So there's, you know, want to talk a little bit about that and kind of the, the production history and then why cyberpunk is such an important genre. Um, It was coming out of like the 1960s, 1970s is when it was really getting big. Mm -hmm. Um, I know this is a little bit, but I just I think I think we should talk a little bit about the uh, the subgenre in science fiction, just because it is, yeah, I think it feel has really importance in today's world as well. So really quick on yeah eye gouging scene because mm-hmm. I watched this last week with my wife who hadn't seen it before, and when Roy is killing his maker in somewhat gruesome fashion, uh, she. I, I mean, she goes, ew, and then she has to look away uh, while the scene is going on <laughs> because it grossed her out so much. So, hey, you know, all these years later, they're still they're still getting that reaction from people, which they would probably be pretty proud of to hear. That. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to I'm gonna be honest. It seems like um, I mean, you can go back and tell her like how they did it, because it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so, Sweet. but yeah, but yeah, go ahead with the subgenre. Um, yeah, so we were ready to move on to that part. Yeah. I mean, oh, I think in terms of design, um, I did thought, I thought it was interesting that they made it in with, uh, Metropolis in mind, the classic Fritz Lang movie of, you know, having the built up urban environments where, you know, the wealthy are literally living above, you know, the working class, um, which, is also a theme they use in this movie. Um, and I, you know, I, I was okay actually with this kind of being low budget and then not being able to use any CGI because I think the visuals and the kind of the, I don't always like using this word, but the kind of gritty style that you get of the locale and the city, you know, and it always raining just kind of suits the themes and the overall mood, you know, of the film. So that's a a rare occasion where not having a lot of money, I think worked in their favor, actually. Yeah, I, I I agree. I think they, Mind you, I think they went they went vastly over budget, if I remember correctly in this. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, by today's standards, it's <laughs> nothing. You know, yeah, not right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then just for frame of reference, too, I wanted to throw out there when people are like, oh, it's, uh, you know, this movie sold like CGI, like, you know, I don't know how big CGI was. Uh, this movie came out the same year. And in fact, uh, a month 
after Tron. Um, so not groundbreaking in the sense of what we consider CGI or like impressive, but still like the fact that an entire movie Tron was based around a lot of this technology and the fact that these movies came out so closely, it's impressive to think that like these guys did this same grand sweeping spectacle on a whole different level while another movie was about to come out that did grand sweeping spectacle on a different level. So it's just kind of cool to know about that production history in that regard. Yeah. 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 For sure. For sure. Cool. Um, do you want to talk about the versions before I get into the, the impact of uh, what the cyberpunk genre is? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we can do that as well. And if, if we're seeming a little choppy here and going back and forth in our order, dear fans, it's because this movie itself is, it's kind of difficult to get in order because of all the different changes that it went through. But, um, yeah, so Blade Runner was released in 1982, as we mentioned earlier. Um, and the what was known as the U.S. theatrical release, which was designed to include the mandated studio happy ending, as well as the addition of Harrison Ford's voiceover. Although... They had done several different versions of the script that had included a narration of some sort to clarify what was happening. Uh, Ford and Scott had decided to add film scenes instead to provide that information. But the suits uh, rewrote and reinserted narration during post-production after test audience members indicated difficulty understanding the film. Scott didn't have final cut privilege back then. And so he didn't really have much of a say in the matter. Um, Ford later said that I contested it mightily at the time. It was not an organic part of the film, even suggested that he intentionally performed the voice over badly in the hope that it would not be used, but he denied that in a later interview. So essentially the movie as you know a bad testing because people can't understand what's going on which i can relate to because that's how i felt the first time i watched the movie in some ways um and they also put added in all these scenes without you know really consulting the director on whether that was a good idea or not which you know always works out when they don't consult the guy who made the movie um they also did a UK, U.S. broadcast version in 1986, which was just a shade under two hours, and it was edited by television company CBS to tone down the violence, profanity, and nudity to meet broadcasting restrictions. And I feel like this was pretty common with movies back then because they ran on cable TV that they had to be edited uh, in order for the stations to be able to air them on their channels. But imagine trying to take all that out of Blade Runner and make it watchable. That must have been a nightmare for whoever had to do that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, there was also the director's cut, um, which was prompted, which was released in 1992 and was prompted by an unauthorized uh, 1990 and 1991 theatrical release of the work print version of the movie. 
Uh, that contains significant changes uh, from the theatrical work print version, uh, meaning the studio kind of found, you know, some of Scott's original ideas and put them back then, but they didn't really consult him on that before they did it. Um, so what they did is then they were able to come back and, you know, get together with Scott um, so that he could make, you know, some changes that he wanted to do. Um, Scott publicly disowned that work print version of the film as a director's cut, citing that it was roughly edited and lacked a key scene and the climax did not feature the score composed for the film. Um, so they were able to actually assemble the actual director's cut with help from Scott and they removed, I can't believe there was this many, they removed, they removed Deckard's 13 explanatory voiceovers that they had Harrison Ford do, uh, the insertion of a dream sequence of the unicorn running through a forest, the removal of the studio imposed happy ending, including some of the visuals which had originally run under the films and credits. Uh, the film and the director's cut ends when the elevator doors close as Deckard and Rachel leave his apartment. Um, and then, of course, there is our final cut, which was released in 2007, and the only version over which Ridley Scott had complete, lit, complete artistic control. So it took 25 years for the director to finally have full artistic control of the movie that he made, which we're talking about Ridley Scott here. He has a history of clashing with studios and fighting over which version is going to be released theatrically. And then later on getting a director's cut of some sort, that's vastly different from the film that was released, but all these different hurdles that Blade Runner went through is just, <laughs> It's just mind boggling to think there were this many different versions of the same movie. Um, the final cut contains the original full length version of the unicorn dream, uh, which had never been in any version and had been restored. And additionally, all the additional violence and alternative edits that were taken out in previous cuts were reinserted. So all the, all the blood and nudity that. <laughs> television stations didn't want uh, was put back into the movie. Um, and then I just had one other quote from Ford about and from Ford and Scott on a couple of things. Um, in regards to those dreaded voiceovers, uh, they interviewed Ford in 1992 and he revealed that Blade Runner is not one of my favorite films. I tangled with Ridley. Uh, when we started shooting, it had been tactically agreed that the version of the film that we agreed upon was the version without voiceover narration. It was a fucking nightmare. I thought the film had worked without the narration, but now I was stuck recreating that narration. And I was obliged to do the voiceovers for people that did not represent the director's interests. I went kicking and screaming to the studio to record it. And then in 2006, they talked to Scott and he said, he was asked actually, who's the biggest pain in the arse you've ever worked with? Uh, and he replied, it's got to be Harrison. 
he'll forgive me because now I get on with him. Now he's become charming, but he knows a lot. That's the problem. When we worked together, it was my first film up and I was the new kid on the block, but we made a good movie. Uh, these two later, <laughs> as you know, Scott alluded to, uh, were able to reconcile and form a mutual respect for one another. But uh, yeah, there was a there was a lot of drama happening uh, behind the scenes for Blade Runner, even after it was released. I mean, yeah, that's fair. It's I, I in, as you're talking about like all the different releases, I think that's why I remember IGN or not IGN uh, G4 making a big deal about it. It was mm -hmm. because there was another release or something like that, and no. so. I think that's why it was on there and that's why I saw it for the first time. Yeah. And I yeah. I'm pretty sure the only versions I've seen were the director's cuts and then the final cut. I don't think I ever saw any of the earlier versions that had all the narrations in there, but between that and the studio mandated happy ending i mean it just sounds like it's a completely different film in a lot of ways so no wonder everybody got so upset yeah i can understand that it does seem that it just i i, I kind of understand why it's such a that has such a cult following and why it's so popular is because it has been kind of in the cultural zeitgeist for decades now in the sense that it's just been ebbing and flowing back and forth between running on tv and then you know, running a different one. And then, I mean, if it, if I didn't know the full story behind it, I would almost say it's like some sort of genius marketing ploy. <laughs> Keep re-releasing it. Yeah. Just, yeah. For more money. Oh, Hey, this, this is the different version now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Come on. Wink, wink. Yeah. I, it's, it's crazy. You, you hear about movies that, you know, are embroiled with drama and clashing and friction between the director and the actors or the director and the studio or whomever. But it just, it's crazy to me that they would hire a guy to do this job. And then, you know, I guess it's not that crazy, but that <laughs> they would then go in and, you know, just completely change so many things. And I, who knows, man, if they had actually released his version that he intended um much like what happened with kingdom of heaven uh, with the differences between that theatrical release and that director's cut maybe it would have been better received uh in the beginning but it got there eventually so no moss yeah. i guess very true cool well that covers all the information i had on the version so i think it's time to talk about cyberpunk, dude. Yeah, um, perfect. So just to kind of put into frame of reference, uh, and the reason I, I just think it's so impactful to talk about this because it is when when I hear the term cyberpunk, I think this movie, as well as several other uh, influential pieces of media during this this these decades, the 19, the 1970s, um, going into that, you know, 19... 80s type feel um because and even starting back with the new wave of science fiction in the 1960s and it kind of just goes back to that counterculture uh that was brewing during this time and really pushed kind of these newer ideas and thoughts 
where I was saying previously, you know, before science fiction was about kind of the goofy spaceman, the, the going off and going to other worlds and kind of more about the monsters outside. And I feel like cyberpunk really focuses much more on the human condition in the sense of the monsters inside mm -hmm. and how we truly are the worst things. And whereas everyone saw the future as a glowing utopia, cyberpunk looks at it as that, you know, dystopia it is scary it is something where we're going to outpace ourselves with technology where um, it's going to become more about the passions of the body and more about this should we and it's that, that jurassic park you know you guys were too busy asking if you could you never asked if you should um type stuff so um kind of just some of the big stuff is when you say cyberpunk, it's uh, Judge Dredd. It was one of the first publications to kind of do it in mm -hmm. a comic book format um, in the 1977. Um, the release in 1948 of William Gibbons' uh, influential novel, um, Neuromancer, um, helped solidify the cyberpunk genre as its own thing mm -hmm. and really was focusing on the themes that were coming out of the pop uh, punk subculture, the music and that kind of era coming from Britain and as well as the currently evolving hacker culture with computers coming up and the rise. And so that whole idea of this otherworldly thing. And on top of that, we're also talking about, you know, influences from Japanese cyber culture, um, where we're talking about Akira, the, um, animated, uh, the, the manga, and then subsequently, that one came out in 1982 and then the subsequent animated um, anime movie uh, by the same name that came out in 1988, where it had a very the same type of thing where you have the higher up aristocrats um, living above. And, you know, there's this dirty dinginess that is below because people are looking at it in the sense of saying, well, why is the future going to be better for everybody? when we're currently living in an age where there are people that are living in these high rise skyscrapers and there are people on the street who have nothing. Why is that going to change in the future? It's just the disparity is only going to get bigger and worse and it's only going to get gross and grimier. And we see that in cyber, uh, we see that in um, Blade Runner where Decker is like literally sitting in a car at one point And then it's like, he's he's a blade runner he's a part of the the the, the police uh, and his car gets like starts people start trying to steal stuff off his car yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so it's like it just shows you like the, and he doesn't get out or do any he just drives away like yeah, just, like just leaves him there he's just like up oh, yep this is part of life and just goes Burp, and then flies away in his spinner um and, and then so, those guys just resume fighting each other exactly yeah. yeah and you know it shows and there's like the whole um the introduction of showcasing the disparity in how dirty the streets are and mm -hmm. all that stuff so it's just very interesting i think it's even uh the stark difference is even clearer in the sequel um where they showcase um just how clean the corporation offices are in comparison mm -hmm. and just like the ridiculousness of them in the set again adds to that with just the grandiose scale of the corporate buildings 
and how, um, you know, one of the main, <laughs> the fight uh, towards the end between the different um, androids is in like an old rundown building with like old, uh, uh, with an old elevator that's like a cage elevator and the toys that are there are kind of old, but also new in some ways. So it's just interesting to see this whole idea come forward as a genre because of like these solidifying media franchises showcasing like, Hey, the future is probably going to suck and we need to realize it's going to suck because that's what art does is teaches us, Hey, we need to really evaluate what we're doing right now. So we don't get to this point in the future. Yeah. I would say we're already seeing a lot of that in our current society. So that doesn't necessarily wage <laughs> any any misgivings I have about our future, but yeah, dude, I I can see all that, and um, I think I saw that Ghost in the Shell. Um, those creators also credited Blade Runner as being an influence. I know there's been some other video games that have done the same um, when they uh, rebooted or did the new version of Battlestar Galactica. That was you know, they definitely look to Blade Runner for that. So this movie, while not commercially successful and while it was overshadowed by, I think, a lot of other science fiction movies that came out around the same time, it definitely had much more of a cultural impact than I think a lot of those other films did and therefore has had more of a lasting legacy as a result. So I, I think that's really cool that it kind of, kickstarted that whole genre all on its own you know? yeah <laughs> i think it, it definitely it's one of those things that when you look at so many different types of media and all that goes around into that you start seeing like oh wow cyberpunk had such a influential impact um in our pop culture and then you look at going oh this exact same building is in um blade runner that's in this video game that i know so mm -hmm. It's kind of a fun, goofy thing. I think even something like Tesla, uh, like Elon Musk has <laughs> designed trucks or vehicles that look like, you know, some of the vehicles from <laughs> Blade Runner. So even in our real lives, it's having an impact. Um, I, in terms of just, you know, what that looked like from, I guess, a narrative perspective, you know, you talk about, uh, the androids, and I mentioned earlier the the scene when they're, uh, I forget her name, Pris, I think, is mm -hmm. at Sebastian's apartment, and they're sitting at that table, dude, and there's just androids just seated around, like his toys, these come, these you know come to life toys that he collects, are just all seated around this table, and dude, it's fucking unsettling as shit watching <laughs> that. Like I. I was uncomfortable watching that scene and it didn't have anything to do with the plot necessarily or with the fact that she was manipulating him to try and get him to lead her and Roy to uh, their creator so that they can get more life. Um, but just the, I mean, they just, they looked like real people and I, I'm sure they were in some cases, but uh, <clears throat> in the scene, they're just supposed to be toys, but they're 
just the way they were designed and the way they moved and the way their eyes darted around it like yeah it it <laughs> it was unsettling watching that and i i hadn't remembered that before so perhaps that was a scene a part in the movie where i was bored and maybe not paying as close of attention as i should have but this last time that really stood out to me <laughs> fair fair yeah. i think in terms of other influences i think we still do continue to see um other other movies and other other science fiction works take their visual cues from Blade Runner in terms of the design and whatnot. I would imagine that would continue. Um, has do you think the cyberpunk genre still looks to this movie as kind of its basis for what it should look like and what it should feel like? Or has it evolved now to a point where it's kind of moved past Blade Runner and is kind of on a whole other page in terms of its own evolution? I mean, it's hard to say just because um, like this was a counter response to a previous science fiction genre. Mm. Uh, I feel like they have we as a culture have started moving oh moving in a counterculture to this. Uh, being said, I think. Uh, the most prevalent, I think, right now, like I was saying, um, the video game uh, Cyberpunk 2077 came out, and it has much more of a bright neon kind of feel to it, where I feel like uh, Blade Runner has much more of a grimy, not neon, I'm trying to think of another color or a lighting source. I want to say LED, but that's not the same thing. Um, it just has a different kind of feel to it, and I feel like we as a culture are kind of moving not away from it as kind of an impactful thing. Cause it's still very culturally relevant. I just feel like we are viewing it and seeing it as something that's point to look at and say, how can we even change up how we are doing dystopian futures? That's slightly mm -hmm. different than this. I think about more recent ones um, like upgrade uh, a movie that came out a while back being more around the idea of us changing ourselves asking the question, are we still human because we change ourselves? Whereas uh, Blade Runner kind of asks the question when we, when we change things or when we implement these things, are we giving sentient life type stuff? So it's, it's important. I do feel like we're moving to other things, but I still, I don't think this is ever going to lose its significance to us as a cultural touch point for media and inspiration, especially. Yeah. Well, I guess we will see. Um, but I, yeah, I think it, when you look at what we're getting out of that genre currently, it, and to me at least, you know, I don't, I wouldn't quote myself as an expert on that by any means, but <laughs> um, just from the outside looking in, I think you can definitely see Blade Runner's fingerprints still over all over a lot of that stuff. And that's probably, I think once you have a launching point for what a style is going to be, you never fully move away from that. Even if, you know, it, it evolves or, <laughs> or changes. And, um, did you have anything else you wanted to touch on cyberpunk specifically before we move on? No, no, I, I think I'm good. <laughs> I think it's a, good quick segue into 
just the tears and rain monologue. Um, and that's, first of all, I, I thought Howard was just sensational during that entire ending sequence, just completely out of his mind method acting or whatever he was doing, but uh, just really great stuff from him. So I can see why he thinks it's his uh, most essential role that he portrayed. And of course, RIP to him as mm -hmm. he, he passed away recently, but um, I, because I only, had only known him from the the sleazy kind of uh, corrupt <laughs> CEO from uh, the Wayne uh, Wayne Enterprises and Batman Begins, so I <laughs> that was a whole new layer to him that I I would wasn't aware he had. But um, I think when you watch that, and you're talking about some of the the themes in terms of you know. The, the more human side and human existence. What does that look like? What really stood out to me about that monologue is that he's the one, of course, that has a short lifespan and it's not possible for him to get more life. And yet he's lived more in those four years than most humans ever have will. And, you know, and he says that and that I've, I've seen things that you people wouldn't even believe. And so it just adds another layer uh, to the subtext of all that. And I think um, it is probably the most uh, emotionally rich uh, narrative point in the film. Uh, I think it's definitely, you know, a movie where the climax, I think, is the high point. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, I think we can go ahead and just kind of speculate now on what we think Blade Runner's legacy will be, you know, moving forward. Um, if you had any final thoughts on what that might be. Yeah, I think, so, I mean, like I was saying, it's clear that Blade Runner as a touchpoint culturally is very significant in just all the different types of media that kind of pull from it and it's such an easy and impressive one to do i think i'm curious to see what they can i uh the sequel obviously 2049 is is very visually impressive in its own right and has an mm -hmm. interesting story to tell um and i just i'm curious to see if what they'll do in the future if they will try to reboot this or do another thing maybe without um Kind of the original story in mind just kind of bring us back into that world because i think it is a very interesting cool world to go through um so on that type of thing i'm interested to see where they go after kind of you know it, the, the movie came out a while back now um the sequel mm -hmm. but it's still i just don't imagine they're just going to be like yep okay cool we uh did this and it made money for us so yeah i think we're fine we're not going to ever go back there so I do think that it is going to be something that they're going to be like, yeah, let's well, let's go back and uh, do some more here. Um, but I mean, it's going to I think this is going to be one of those movies that is just consistently shown, consistently brought forward in all different forms of, you know, classes, teaching about movies. It's so important and for that. I feel like just kind of showcasing what you can do on a budget. <laughs> yeah. And you can still make visually impressive things even if you don't have all the money in the world that you want to have. Well, and that was really 
kind of the measuring stick back then of whether you were worth your salt as a, a director or not, right? Because you didn't have these huge budgets or these these really innovative CGI or special effects to fall back on. So you really had to use all, all the all the tricks available to you in order to make the the most of your film and to kind of fool the audience into thinking this was all real. But um, yeah, uh, in terms of like the future, I I don't. I haven't heard anything about this being rebooted at any point. Um, I know that because they brought back uh, the original screenwriter um, from Blade Runner to do 2049, uh, Hampton Fancher. Uh, he had said, I think, around when Blade Runner 2049 came out that he did have an, another idea for uh, a future film that Ford said that he would be open and Ford uh, said that he would be open to returning if he liked the script. Uh, they asked Scott about it in January, 2018. Uh, he stated he had another story ready to evolve and be developed. And that's, there's definitely one that they can do. And then in 2020, uh, Villeneuve expressed interest in coming back to the universe, but only if he could make something disconnected from the other movies as opposed to a direct sequel. So they, at this point, I don't think they have anything concrete in terms of continuing this. It sounds like not everybody's on the same page there. <laughs> and Villeneuve is not known for coming back and doing sequels, although that might change depending on the set, uh, success of Dune. But um, yeah, I, I think a reboot of this would be I pity the, the poor soul takes that on viewing it as a potential big break in their career because there's just there's no way they're going to live up to the original in terms of as you've said becoming that next cultural touchstone and having the same impact that the original had because if you take all that away and the style and the design and the visuals are not as influential. There's not a whole lot else to this film to be widely praised. You know, you have some solid performances, really good in the case of Howard. Um, but story-wise, again, I, I always felt this, again, to be a little thin and, you know, there wasn't a whole lot... It wasn't a whole lot to grasp your attention there and to keep you interested and invested. So I, I think a reboot is a horrible idea, but I, I usually think that in terms of Hollywood trying to redo classic film. Um, so if they decide they want to continue this, I think that would be fine. I, I would just hope that like they did with 2049, and we'll talk about more when we do the Villeneuve episode in the future, but that they actually have a story to tell and a reason for coming back to this universe rather than, oh, well, let's, let's just do another one for the hell of it. You know, not that Blade Runner is a, a particularly lucrative franchise anyway, but yeah. Um, as far as its influence in the future on cyberpunk or sci-fi as a whole, yeah, I'm totally fine with, uh, people continuing to take their visual cues and their design cues from this is, you know, inspiration for 
crafting their own worlds and their their own environments and such. I would just hope that they would look a little more to the narrative in terms of trying to make a more engrossing story because you know there's there's so much content out there now dude and i mean people people just have so many options and with all the things they can do with cgi and special effects it's it's just not super impressive to you know make something that just looks really cool so i you know, look for look to it for your design, but you know, put a little more effort into the into your story, future filmmakers. If you know you wanna you wanna use this as your your starting point. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, unless you have more thoughts, Michael, I think I feel pretty good about where we're at with Blade Runner, and yeah, I I definitely have a newfound I think appreciation for this, and we'll view it in the future. Um, yeah, I think I'm, that's good for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I feel solid on it too. So, uh, perfect. Yeah. Uh, we'll wrap it up here then. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Hit the Reel, the podcast where we talk about the entertainment that we consume and what we really think about it. Uh, we try to get this podcast out weekly, uh, usually on Saturdays. Uh, so, feel free to uh, bookmark that in your calendar um, and be anxiously awaiting for the next episode. Um, <laughs> And in fact, next week, we're going to be talking about um, a movie that I feel like and TV show now uh, that at one point, one of my friends told me he literally put off sex to force that person to watch the movie before they did the deed. So come back and find out what that movie is next week. And uh, thank you for listening. And like always, hey, uh, keep it real. Mm-hmm.